Slow Burn Media and Evergreen Podcast presents Who Killed, a podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless. First at 5.30, more than 20 years have passed with few answers about a series of murders in the Connecticut River Valley. People in that area suspect it was the work of a serial killer. In the late 1970s and through the 80s, several women disappeared around the Claremont area and in nearby Vermont. The Attorney General's office says it still can't be certain how many cases are related. Today, a state lawmaker tried drawing new attention to it all. Heather Hamill live now, and Heather, this attempt didn't get much traction. Well, that's true, Jean, because Representative Steve Lindsay, who introduced the bill, recommended killing it as well. No one other than Lindsay even spoke for or against it, and in the end, his unusual way of going about this was questioned by committee members. In the late 70s and 1980s, the crime shook the very core of the Connecticut River Valley. At least seven women stabbed and murdered. In 2011, still no arrests. Keen Representative Steve Lindsay says he wants answers and justice. And women uh, without too many ties, uh, women that were easy, easily forgotten. I'd like to reignite uh, interest in the case and I'd like to uh, bring some resolution. Lindsay introduced a bill that would give the state's cold case unit $200,000 to exhume the victims of the so-called Connecticut River Valley killer and perform DNA testing. Hello and welcome to episode 197 of Who Killed? I'm your host, Bill Huffman, and this is a Slow Burn Media, Evergreen Podcasts, and Killer Podcast production. On this week's episode, I am very lucky to be joined by a survivor of the Connecticut River Valley serial killer, and that is one Jane Borowski. Very nice to have you on the show, and thank you so much for joining us. Welcome. Thank you, Bill. Thank you for having me and allowing me to share my story. Yes, your story is something that is a little different than what we do normally on this show, but we do always like to keep our victims and unsolved cases on the forefront. And since you are a victim of this case, I would really be interested in knowing what it is that impacted, or basically how this all started in your life. And if you could just start from uh, you know, how you got involved, unfortunately, and we'll go from there. Yeah, I um, I was 22. It was 1988. And uh, I went to a fair. Uh, I live in a small community in New Hampshire, um, Swansea, Winchester, Hinsdale, that area. Um, and uh, I went to a fair that night, uh, the county fair, Cheshire County Fair. It's It's a fair that every year they have it in... People just congregate there and meet up with different people they know. And and it's a, a family fun fair. And uh, so I went to the fair and uh, walked around, ran into a bunch of people I knew, did a little bit of chit-chat here, chit-chat there. And then uh, I was uh, leaving the fair. It was oh, 11-ish, 11.30-ish. Um, it was hot. That summer was brutally hot and humid. Um, I was seven months pregnant uh, with my daughter. And uh, I started going home. And um, I was I was driving through Swansea on a main road. Um, 
Now this this town has virtually no major crime whatsoever. And uh I knew there was a store right on Route 10 that it was closed but I knew it had a vending machine outside a soda vending machine. So I pulled in and parked in front of the the soda machine and uh got some change out and went and got a soda and I'm in my car and I'm I'm drinking my soda getting ready to leave. And this uh, Jeep Wagoneer pulled up beside me on my passenger side. I didn't think anything of it. There's a payphone sitting there. There's a soda machine sitting there. I really didn't think anything of it. Um, And then he walked around the backside of my car and uh, came over to my my driver's side door and, and asked me if the phone worked. And... Right as he did that, he opened my door and and tried to take me out of my car, uh, and we struggled. I, I I I fought quite a bit. I fought so much that somehow I was a I I somehow I my feet came up. I was kicking him, and I smashed my windshield when I when I kicked him, and um. After struggling and fighting and screaming, uh, he took a knife out and said, maybe this will persuade you, persuade you to get out of the car. And I did. It did. And I got out of the car and we're standing by my car. And, you know, at first I was scared and, and he was just acting so calm and, but yet acting weird. Because all of a sudden he was like, um, you beat up my girlfriend and isn't this a Massachusetts car? So I'm like thinking, okay, this guy is like out there somewhere and he's confusing me with somebody else. And so I said, no, no, this is a New Hampshire car. And he walked around the backside of my car to look at my plates and um, started walking back to his vehicle. And I was like, what is this guy doing? I didn't feel threatened at that time. I just felt like he confused me with somebody else. And then I realized, you know what? I got a smashed windshield. (laughs) So I said these words I will regret for the rest of my life. I said, hey, a-hole, what about my windshield? As he was walking back to his vehicle. and. he turned around and came back to me and put a knife up against my neck. And we stood there for know, a few seconds. I And, like, I had no idea what this guy, this guy was capable of doing. I, I, I didn't. I mean, you got to remember, this is back before Internet, before social media. I had no idea that there were serial killers lurk in the state of New Hampshire and Vermont. So I knew nothing about that. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you had any awareness that there was such a thing going on, that women were being killed, and if that even was something that they had recognized. No, I didn't. And that was just not the case. Yeah, I mean, wow. I was 22. You know, I, I there, again, there was no internet or social media back then, so I I didn't know anything about these cases. And um, I saw a car 
starting to drive by. And uh, I knew the only way I was going to get out of that situation is I, I needed to run to the road and scream. And so I took off. I started running towards the road and screaming, and the car just drove right by. And he tackled me down just like a football player right on the pavement. And before I knew it, I was on my back, and he was on top of me and just stabbed, just started stabbing me. And um, I ultimately was stabbed 27 times. I had a lot of defensive stab wounds in my hands because I was trying to protect my baby. Um, he did cut my juggler. Um, I, I ended up having two collapsed lungs. He cut my tendon in my hand, a tendon in my knee. Uh, lacerated a piece of my liver. I had a piece of my liver removed. But he just, um, he was on top of me, and I just couldn't, it was almost like an out-of-body experience. I couldn't believe this was happening. This guy was just stabbing the crap out of me. And uh, all of a sudden, he just stopped and got up and walked. He, he was walking away. He wasn't running. He was walking. And I was laying there thinking... Very, very casually, like it was... Like casually. I don't know. It was. He was so calm. He was so calm throughout the whole thing. It's like he never got mad, but never showed emotion. Um, you know, he did want me to go with him at first. Yeah. Um, it was very evident that he wanted me to go with him to begin with, and, and I wasn't going to. I, I was fighting him pretty bad about that. But... um. Yeah. This is all going on outside of the store? Yep, yep. This, by your car? Yeah, in the parking lot. And what? And then you said it was late, and this was like close to like midnight, you said? Yep. So it would have been not busy? No. I no. guess. I mean, no. so there was no no witnesses or anything other than you? Yeah. That must have been, obviously, the scariest thing to ever uh, happen. Um, now, you said at first you weren't, I don't know. I mean, you you kind of made it sound like you weren't too scared of him at first. And then... Once we got out of the car and he started talking about me beating up his girlfriend and I had Massachusetts plates on my car, which I didn't. Um, yeah, I was. I, I didn't feel threatened anymore. I, I thought maybe this guy was just confusing me with somebody else. Once he starts going crazy talk like that where he's referencing fighting your his girlfriend yeah. having different plates where you'd then say no i have new hampshire plates and you know it's uh yeah you gotta be like this guy's lost his freaking mind yeah, that's exactly what not, i was thinking this guy is and not he's gonna stab me a billion uh 27 times yeah. you know and I mean, so like you said, most of your wounds were, or a lot of your wounds were defensive, yeah. but you had two collapsed lungs and a sliced jugular vein. How in the world were you able to do what you did next? And what is it that you did next? Well, when I, when I heard him walk away, I, I obviously didn't know where he was. I was laying on the ground still. And uh, I somehow got up on my hands and knees to get up. And um, his, I heard his vehicle start driving, like start driving by me. And I looked up and he just drove right by me. Didn't speed off or anything. He just drove right by me and looked right down at me. And I looked right at him. And um, he, he just drove off. So I 
eventually got up and got to my car. Uh, I was bleeding pretty bad. I could hear the blood just gushing out of me. And I got in my car, and uh, I knew my friend lived about two miles down the road on that main road. So I, I said, okay, I got to get help. I've, I've got to get to his house. He can get me help. So I pulled out and I started driving towards my friend's house. And before I know it, I'm right behind him. I'm like, oh my God, there he is. He's right in front of me. And I was so scared. I was like, he's going to see where I pull in. I, I was terrified of that. And um, so uh, my friend's house came and I pulled into my friend's house, his driveway, and he, the monster just kept driving, driving along. And so when I got to the house, um, my friend came to the door, he came to his screen door and I just, I told him somebody just uh, stabbed the crap out of me and I needed help. And I ended up collapsing on his stairs and, and that's when the police came and the rescue came and all that. So basically you feel like adrenaline got you and, and the survivor instinct of keeping yeah. your baby alive is probably what drove you to. Make oh, it I, I'm a miles. true believer. I would not be alive if I wasn't pregnant. True believer of that. She gave me the strength and, uh, she wanted to survive, which gave me the strength to, to survive. You were fighting for two people. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, I guess that's, if you think about it and you think about this particular um, perpetrator, you're the only survivor. Yeah. So that. But I didn't know that for two weeks. I was in the hospital for two weeks and. uh, Yeah. What happened after that? Read it in the paper. Okay. Read it in the paper. So the police didn't inform you that there were, did they know? Were the police aware? Yes. Okay. Okay. So they were quick to put two and two together. Yeah. Now, I've read that you were able to get some of the license plate. Yeah they they had they had me go to a um, a criminal profiler uh, John Philpin. He was uh, really involved with all the cases. Um, So he hypnotized me to try to get you know, some kind of license plate. Um, I I guess while I was hypnotized, um, the license plate was really dirty. So I really had a hard time um, getting anything off it. I I believe some of the numbers were like 336 or 226 or something like that. Um, I really don't think it's reliable. um, Right. Because it was so dirty. Because I don't remember seeing the license plate that night. Um, I my, my body obviously went into shock, and I was just focusing on getting help. So I, I really didn't. So this is a very interesting situation that you find yourself in at that point in time, where you're pregnant and your baby survives. My baby survived. I actually carried her full term until uh, for two months after. Amazingly. That is amazing. And were you able to, I mean, were you recovered by the time you were giving birth? I mean, that must have been just another traumatic experience on top of, uh, you know, everything. Yeah, I I was, I was in the hospital for a few weeks. Um, Okay. I was in ICU for five days. 
I was on a ventilator because obviously I had two collapsed lungs and and everything else. I I went into surgery immediately that night of my attack and they removed a piece of my liver and I remember having tubes in my sides for the for the um ventilator for my um collapsed lungs and uh yeah, I was in pretty bad shape. They didn't think I was going to survive. Even in the hospital, they didn't think I was going to survive. So I was in I was in ICU for uh, about five days, and then I went into a regular room. And this whole time, I had a, a security, I had a, a police officer outside my door. Um, so everybody that went in and out, they, I had to. There was only immediate family allowed that had, in to see me. That had to be a little comforting. It was once I realized, yeah, because I didn't realize anything for like five days. And then when I went into the um, my regular room, um, my family kind of sheltered me from all the news media and the newspapers and all that. So I really didn't know what was going on on the outside world. I just knew what was going on in the hospital. And I knew there was a, a police officer at my door all the time. And... uh one one day my my mother was at the hospital and we were sitting this was when I was in my regular room and I was like Dennis my husband I said why is Dennis so determined for me not to watch the news or or look at the newspapers or anything cuz every time they brought newspapers in he'd take the newspaper and um my mother was like you're all over the news and I'm like, what do you mean I'm all over the news? She's like, oh, you're all over CNN. You're on WMUR Channel 9 News in, Ma- in New Hampshire. You're in mass on all the news channels in mass. Um, you're in the newspapers everywhere. And I'm like, are you kidding me? That didn't bother me. It, what bothered me was as soon as I found out that my name was everywhere. And... I was like, this guy has not been caught yet, and my name is everywhere. Now, they don't do that today. Now, the victims' names are not revealed at all in the news or the newspaper or anything like that. But back then, it was. And it was like, do they even realize how much danger they put me in? So... I am um, as a journalist that is so frustrating isn't it never isn't it? never ever ever do that no I mean I, uh that's so I'm so sorry that you had to be because yeah. that puts that's like a whole nother added stress to your life that you've already you're dealing with so much to begin with and now you've get outed in the newspaper as being one of, being the victim that survived yeah I mean how is that not gonna yeah just that's just uh foolishness in my opinion and not thinking things through but times have changed they have thank god thank god yeah that kind of brings me to the point where physically you're stabbed 27 times how how long was it before you felt like i mean did you fully recover i did physically you know i it took me about a month to fully recover um you know, my, my tendon in my hand and my tendon in, in my knee took quite a while to to recover. I had to do a lot of physical therapy and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, physically, yeah, I, I recovered Men- yeah, pretty men- good. Mentally. Mentally, not so much. No, 
You know, I was in the hospital when a, a nurse came in with a newspaper, and that's when I read that uh, they were connecting me with the Connecticut River Valley killings. And uh, that really did a job on me mentally. And when the detectives came to the hospital to see me, they came quite a few times to interview me and stuff. And, you know, I was like, is this true? And, you know, they were like, yeah, yeah. And every day they came to the hospital, I was like, so you, you find him yet? You catch him yet? Because I'm thinking in my mind, they're going to find out who this is and catch him and arrest him. And I, I didn't have to, you know, have to worry about it anymore. But when the day, the day that came that I was being released, I, I said to them, okay, is this gentleman outside my door coming to my house to protect me? And um, obviously not. They were like, no, no. Um, but we're going to have police. Um, uh, the police in your town will do drive-bys around by your house. And I, I was just like, are you kidding me? This is just crazy. So it was like shortly, like right after I got home, my nightmare started. Um, my nightmares got really bad and, and, uh, yeah, mentally I was, I was, I was a mess. I was a mess. And then when I had my daughter, you know, I was so much stuff goes through my mind. It's like, I don't even know how to protect myself. How am I going to protect my daughter? And you know, I it's like, it was just, uh, it was a very, very difficult time in my life. Very, very difficult. And, you know, was, every week that went by, I kept thinking, they're going to find him. They're going to catch him. They're going to figure out who this was. And, um, you know, every week came by and, and no, they, they never, they never found him, never arrested him, never identified him, anything, you know, to this day, it's still unsolved. All of them are. That is where I was going next, and that was how this case has remained unsolved when we have a survivor like you, and you were able to get a composite sketch? or Yeah, I did a, I did a composite. How long after you were attacked did they actually ask you for your information about what you saw, who you thought this guy was? Or was that during the hypnot... Uh, when you were hypnotized, because I I know that like you see it yeah. on TV, and they come into the hospital and they, God, let me talk to the victim, and they're like, we can't do that, you know, blah 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 blah. But they always seem to do that. So well, it's interesting because um, when I when they did the composite, I was still in ICU, and I was still on a, a ventilator. So they came in oh. with this box. And it had like different films of eyes and nose and, and, you know, the face, the face shape and the hair. And, and I laid in bed and I blinked. Identicate. Oh it's my like, gosh. Are these the eyes? And I blink and show me something else. And I blink once or blink twice, once for yes, twice for no. And, and, you know, that was when it was like after I got out of the hospital, I kind of wondered why they did that. But then I'm thinking, oh, my God, they didn't even think I was going to survive. So they had to get some kind of composite out there in case I didn't survive. So I wasn't able to. Fair, yeah. fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. But um, as soon as I had the ventilator out and I was in my regular room, they came up pretty regularly to interview me and to find out exactly what happened that night. Because they, they didn't know 
exactly what happened that night because I was, I was on a ventilator and I couldn't speak and I was, I was completely out of it. I mean, I don't remember anything those, those five days, but, um, yeah. So it was shortly after that when I was in my regular room is when they, they came in and started getting the real story and real information about exactly what happened. Now you mentioned when you left the, you know, you got home, the nightmares began and PTSD is obviously something that you had to deal with and deal with probably still to this day. I'm sure uh, it doesn't just go away, unfortunately. Uh, can you explain a little bit about uh, how you've been able to deal with that? Well, I did not realize I had PTSD until 2010. It was 20 years after my attack. It's fair to say, though, you, the diagnosis back in 1988 probably wouldn't have been the same yeah. as it was. It's, psychology came a little bit It's so away, different you know. now. It's like now when victims um, or survivors are in, you know, have some kind of trauma or, or whatever and, and say they're in the hospital, the first thing they do is they offer them counseling before they leave. They give them some kind of counseling tools before they leave. Back then, they didn't do that. It was like, okay, physically, you're healed. You're being discharged. Have a nice life. I hope you, you know, stay safe or whatever. And, and that was pretty much what the case was with me. Um, you know, I, I, I tried to live a normal life as, as much as I could. I tried to uh, move move forward. I tried to not allow it to control my life. Um, but the reality is it did. It, it, uh, I made a lot of bad choices because of the state of mind I was in for so many years. And, um, you know, I, I ended up becoming a real serious compulsive gambler. Gambling for me, it, it was my, it was my escape from the reality of what happened to me. It was, it was the only thing I could think of to, I could go and I could gamble and I didn't have to think about it anymore. And, um, because of that, I, I made a lot of bad choices in my life. And, uh, in 2010, um, I hit rock bottom and I went to jail because I did, uh, I stole from an organization that I, I loved very much. I was, I was a part of it for 25 years and uh, I ended up going to jail for it, but I, I never used my attack as an excuse. I've always taken full responsibility for, for uh, my bad choices that I've made, but I was also court ordered to go to counseling for my gambling. And uh, it was while I was in, in counseling for my gambling about two months later, I had an excellent counselor. She was so, she was so awesome. I had told her about my attack about two months after, and she was like, this happened to you? Oh my God. And, you know, we started talking about it more and she's like, I want to clinically diagnose you with PTSD. And I was like, PTSD is for like veterans that have fought overseas, you know, and in wars and, and she's like, no, I'm, 
So she went over the computer and she printed me out a bunch of uh, symptoms of PTSD. And uh, she gave me the paper and she said, you go home, you read this. And then you come back next week and you tell me what you think. And it had been in my pocketbook for a couple of days and I happened to take it out and I'm I'm looking at it and I'm like, oh my God, I have PTSD. I had every single one of those fit symptoms. Every single one of those symptoms affected my life in such a negative way. And uh, so I went back. I said, okay, I have PTSD. Now what? And she said, now we start healing you. And that's what we did. Uh, it took seven years. Um, it's still, I still heal every day. Um, it's, it's a, it's a process. But for the first seven years, it was like, I did some real good, intense, uh, counseling. Uh, I, we addressed every single one of my symptoms and, and, you know, made me see how it affected my life in a negative way and how I can turn it around to be positive. And, um, after seven years, I was just like, wow, I've, I've, uh, I now realize I didn't live a normal life <laughs> in, for the first 20 years after my attack. That was just a, that was just a facade that I was living. Um, but now I live a very happy, normal life. I, I, I've become a person I've always wanted to be. Um, you know, I wake up every morning. I'm going to be a better person today than I was yesterday. And that's what I strive to do. And uh, that's one of the reasons why I want to tell my story. You know, I want to, I want people to say, you know, wow, I've gone through something traumatic and I've never been able to talk about it, but I'm listening to Jane and I, I want to talk about it now. I want to, you know, heal. Um, you know, if I help that one person, that's, that's the whole that that's my whole purpose of doing this podcast, Invisible Tears. It's uh I just want to help that one person. Yeah. I I you kinda leave me without words. I'm um, sorry. No, no. I kinda threw I, everything at you. No, I I've no, it's it's i I'm a huge, huge proponent of therapy. I've been in therapy since I was ten. So um, you know, I was lucky enough to have that uh mom who was there to say you know you aren't you probably should go see somebody and i remember having the epiphany being like i'm not talking to some yeah i don't need to do that you know there's, no, there's nothing wrong with me and you want to show weakness no I, you know i was 10 years old i was a tough little boy yeah. and then you know the, the yeah. next night i had the same issues like not being able to sleep and the anxiety and i'm like yeah, you're right. <laughs> I gotta, I, I'm ready. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah, once you come, once you come to that sort of, uh, you know, realization, it doesn't matter if you're young, you're old or, you know, whatever age you are, it's just like, it opens up your whole world to see a, a difference that you've never seen before. I mean, it's a whole new world, as they say, <laughs> not to sound cliche, but it's true. And, what you went through, my goodness. I mean, your therapist, what did your therapist, um, in regards to like your decision-making, you said you don't blame your actions for, you know, what you did on your attack, but the underlying factor is it did play a role in. Oh, exactly. 
and I, I've always, I've always said, you know, I take full responsibility for my bad choices, but my counselor did, uh, she did say, you know, you can't help but, but notice it and realize that it was a, my bad choices were a direct result of my attack and, and the lack of counseling or no counseling I, I didn't receive for 20 years. So, yeah, I mean, even though I do take responsibility, if I, I kind of wonder, you know, if I wasn't attacked, would I have made those bad choices in my life? Would I have uh, began gambling, my gambling addiction? Um, probably not. Probably not. Yeah, you, you know, you see a lot of people I mean, that cover it up with alcohol and drugs and, you know, a variety of other things, other addictions, you know, there's just a myriad of issues that you can get yourself involved with if you're not addressing, uh, you know, not to make it like a sports cliche, but, you know, if you're, if you're a runner and your left foot's hurt and you start then favoring your right foot, guess what? Your right foot ends up hurting. And so it's just a catch-22. And without receiving counseling, I mean, I can't even fathom what you went through for 20 years of your life without receiving the appropriate counseling that you deserved as a victim. Um, yeah. I just feel so bad for you in that regard like that's just such a such a uh, drop of the ball by uh health health providers you know just people who should be able to say hey you know you should probably get some counseling too if they're gonna make you do it for gambling addiction you know again times were different but still when i made times were different but i hit a lot of things okay I hit a lot of things, you know, I I cried a million tears in silence. I I never showed anybody what I was really going through in my head. Um, Hence invisible tears. I I attempted. Yes. I I attempted suicide twice. Oh no. I I went through such depression, but my depression, I, I, I was going through the depression, like in my bedroom, in my privacy of my bedroom. But once I walked out that door, I I had to put on this. For some reason, I felt like I couldn't show weakness. I had to be strong. So once I walked out that door, I was like, okay, I'm not going to show how I'm feeling today. I'm just going to try to, you know, move on and and do a normal life, you know. And and, uh, my life was nothing but normal. Oh, now, you know, once, once I was sitting in that jail cell and I realized, holy crap. My life is messed up and I need to do something to, uh, I need to do something to change it. And, uh, that's what I did. You know, um, I didn't have much hope while I was in jail, but once I got my counseling, I have a lot of hope now. You know, my life is so good. I have a granddaughter. My daughter survived and she blessed me with the most beautiful granddaughter. She's going to be nine. And, um, no, I, I'm just, I'm so, uh, I'm so blessed and so thankful for where my life is today, but I don't know that my life would be like this today if I hadn't gone through all those learning, all the, the learning bad choices, you know, the bad choices I made, I had to learn from. 
And so, you know, maybe that turned me into the person I am today and my life, the way my life is today. That's a totally fair assessment. I think that um, the decisions that we make along the way in our lives do dictate the people, you know, we become good choices and bad. We've all made them. You know, it's, it, it's some at different levels. Some it, That's the one thing, you know, there's no therapy that fits one person. It's just, or I mean, that fits all people. It's everybody's different. You know, you got to approach things differently. I mean, your story is obviously completely different than anybody else's story who goes into counseling. And I, I just think it's such an important part of our culture that has been stigmatized that people don't turn to counseling for help. And it's such a sad state of affairs, in my opinion, because it's not a a sign of weakness at all. It's actually a sign of courage and a sign of bravery because you're willing to explore the inner depths of you. And there's nothing more. Exactly. You you know, how many people have you run into since you've been out of therapy that you're just like, you need therapy and you and you're in your mind you don't say it because you know better but you know how many people it's jane how many there's been a few there's been a few <laughs> it may it, again it yeah. it opens your eyes and you you really see things from a new perspective and um yeah i'm so happy that you got that counseling that you did during that counseling did you guys discuss the case at all that that you were involved with somewhat we talked a lot about him okay um at first i didn't want to because i just um i felt too much attention was put on him with everything so hey i really didn't want to talk about him much and and she's like he did this to you you know (laughs) you you got to talk to talk about him and um that's when i realized how much anger I had inside me with him and, and about him. And it it was, uh, I knew I had a lot of anger inside me, but I didn't realize how much until we started to talk about him and, and all that stuff. So it was like, um, now I can talk about him, but, I don't talk about him a lot. It's like, you know, I, I don't think he's human. <laughs> I, I, I refer to him as evil or a monster. Um, do I? He's definitely not a human being as far as I'm concerned. Um, but we also talked about, as far as the cases are concerned, one of the things I had to deal with a lot, too, was um, survival guilt. Survival guilt is a very real thing. And I didn't realize how much it was affecting me until we really started talking about it. Because it was like, uh, you know, these seven women were killed and I survived. I can't even, and what was going through my mind was, I can't imagine how that, their families must feel about me. Like they must feel like, she survived. Why couldn't our loved ones survive? You know, and that, you know, it wasn't till a few years after I, I realized that these families were very grateful that I survived. And, um, 
it was uh it was eye opening um survival guilt is so real and it, it just it did eat at me a lot and we talked about that a lot it, it was uh it was hard it was hard getting past that yeah, I was going to ask you about that but I didn't really want to open that can of worms earlier when you started when I mentioned that you were the only survivor and and I just didn't want to put that on you because of all the other stuff that you have to go through as well. So explain to me a little bit about how you've been able to overcome that survivor's guilt. I mean, I know that's probably something you still deal with daily. I don't as much. The way I look at it is I survive for a reason. And, um, you know, I'm a true believer. Everything happens for a reason in our lives. And I survived um, because now... I can be these women's voice. These women don't have a voice anymore because they were so brutally murdered and, and it was taken away from them. I can be their voice now and, and I can relate to what they went through. And not a lot of people can do that. And, you know, I, I don't feel the guilt anymore. I feel like, um, instead of, uh, thinking so negative about it now, I think more positive. What can I do positive to, um, you know, I survived, these women didn't, what can I do positive? And I can tell their stories, you know, and that's what I want to do. I want to more focus. If you look up these women online, mm-hmm. all you see is um, the what they, that they were murdered, you know, what they went through, they were murdered. But you don't know that most of them have brothers and sisters, um, what their interests were. They had lives before they, they were so brutally taken away. And um, I'm going to be able to be their voice to tell their stories and to talk about them in their real lives, not just about what happened to them. And, and I'm thankful for that. That's amazing. And that's an, a, a really interesting perspective to have a uh, great perspective to have on on this case especially being in the position that you're in uh, it's a, an, a way to honor them uh, and it's a way to um, keep keep the story going because you know once the yeah. media stops following stories it kind of you know that's when they become cold cases and yeah. you know what do you do when the media stops following your case. And I mean, you probably had, how long did the media follow your case before they trailed off? And probably about a year, give or take about a year. I mean, for most people, that's pretty, that's a, that's a long time, but the fact that the case didn't get ever get solved, it should still be something that is on the front and center of all these different towns where these murders took place and we're not talking can you explain a little bit to the listener about how small of an area where these bodies were found well unity is a very small town um i think they might have 2000 residents in unity um a lot of back roads dirt roads very isolated uh um Claremont is a small community. Um, you know, these are, they're very small communities, um, especially back in the 80s 
they didn't have the strip malls, they didn't have the Walmarts, they didn't have all these these big box stores and um, you know, all the the big uh franchise restaurants or anything like that. They were very, very small communities. Um, they've obviously grown over the years, but um, you know, where these women were found, it was um dirt road, back roads, uh very isolated. Um you know, all, all except for Linda Moore and uh, Barbara Agnew. Um, well, Barbara Agnew's body was found in Kellyville, and that was a very uh, small, small community, small town. Um, she was found in the woods. So, yeah, it's, it's uh, very isolated, very isolated areas. Easy to be a serial killer, I guess, is uh, a bad way of putting it, but not a lot of people out there to tell you or catch you doing what you're doing if you're disposing of people's remains in these completely isolated areas. But the fact that these towns are so small, one is left to believe that the killer has to be somebody that was somebody local. Yeah. Um, we went up, uh, me and my team went up uh, to the Claremont area to where most of the bodies were found. Um, about a couple of months ago, I, first time I've been up there to actually see where their bodies were found. And, uh, it was, uh, to me, he knows the area. He, he knows the area very well. Um, um, like two of the victims, like Elizabeth Critchley and Eva Morse, their bodies were found 500 feet apart. But five years apart. So he revisited that area. For sure. Um, you know, so he, he's a lot of these places. We had a hard time finding these roads and where these bodies were found. So he knew the area because he where where he put them. It, it was it was very isolated. Very, very isolated. There's just no. So basically what you're saying is there's no way that. Any random Joe is just going to end up where he ended up putting those bodies. He had to know where he was going. Yeah, no, yeah, he had it planned before he he even found the victims. Like he like yeah. he knew exactly where he was going with those people. Yep, it, it was so evident. You mentioned your team. So, what does your team uh, in, consist of? And uh, are you guys investigating the 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 crime? Well, well, let's start with when we we started. Invisible tears. Um, Let's hear it. My, we were uh, we were in lockdown <laughs> with the um, pandemic, and me and my daughter were listening to some podcasts, and uh, she's like, "Oh, let's punch up your name." <laughs> so she punched up my name, and all of a sudden, we we're hearing podcasts about my my attack. I was like, "Oh, listen to that!" And she's like, "Oh my god, they're so wrong!" And listen to them; they they they. They're just reading off the internet. She's like, that's just, uh, you need to do a podcast. You need to tell your story in your words. And um, I have no technical experience whatsoever with anything. I, I don't even, she's the one that had to do the podcast and put that up. So uh, she's like, um, let's get a hold of Andrew, Drew Bernard. He was a him and my uh, his parents are have been best friends with us for years, and uh, I actually babysat him when he was was young, um, him and his siblings. 
So I got a hold of him and I said, what do you think about helping me do a podcast? Tell him my story. Well, he, um, him and his wife, Amanda, they were like, let's do it. And, uh, so we just, for the last two years, we've been working on it and we, um, we have invisible tears and, uh, they are amazing. He's, um, he, he, he's the producer of my podcast. Amanda is my co-host, my life coach. Um, she does all the editing of my podcast and, um, there's me. So it's, it's a great team. We've, uh, become really close. I trust them. I, I, I can't imagine doing this with anybody but them because they make me feel like, um, they make me feel safe. And they make me, they let me tell my story and the way they edit and the way they, um, allow me to tell my story is just amazing. And, uh, I'm grateful for them. Totally grateful for them. That's amazing. And it's, it's really amazing that you're, you're going back and revisiting the scenes and, you know, taking that extra step to, um, dive deeper into this case and do you feel like it's getting any um close i mean i noticed that there were a couple suspects on the internet and uh yeah. um, one in particular yeah, yeah so can you explain uh you don't you don't have to go and tell me the name but like is there anybody is there any chance that this guy is the, is, oh, is the guy let's get the name out okay. there michael nicolau you punch up my name or you punch up the, uh Connecticut River Valley killings and Michael Nicolau is there. Um, a private investigator contacted me way back in like, I think it was 2005 or something like that. Told me that she had all this info on this Michael Nicolau guy and felt like he was the Connecticut River Valley killer. And, um, I, I, I had formed a relationship with her for about two years and, uh, she was super into media attention, like huge media attention. And, um, I very quickly realized that, um, everything that she was doing with this whole Mick, Michael Nicolau thing was, um, for her agenda. It wasn't to, uh, solve anything. It was to, uh, put her in the limelight. And a lot of things that she was saying was just circumstantial and hearsay. And I started picking up on some stuff and I'm like, well, that's hearsay. And, uh, she just felt very strongly that it was Michael Nicolau. And, um, after I, I had talked to a couple of other people and a couple of private investigators and, um, had them review Michael Nicolau. The detectives in Concord reviewed Michael Nicolau. And it, we've decided it, it wasn't Michael Nicolau. Um, was he a bad man? He was definitely a bad man. I mean, he killed his wife and stepdaughter and possibly his first wife. Um, so, uh, yeah, he was a bad man. But was he the Connecticut Valley killer? No, a lot of things don't fit with him. Um, this private investigator that brought him to my attention 
was only finding things that, or, or using things that made him fit into the investigation. He, she never did any elimination, <laughs> I should say. Um, and there was a lot of things to eliminate him, but she never focused on that. She just tried, she'd find something and say, well, you know, he may have been in this area at that time because I found this or, you know, so she always tried to make him fit. But I I, I really tried to uh, listen to her with an open mind about everything. You know, because over the years, I've had so many people come to me, come knocking on my door. I know who this did, who did this to you. I know who the Connecticut River Valley killer is. I've been investigating this for years. It's my brother-in-law or it's my, my old classmate or, you know, different people. So I've heard this, you know, before. So as I'm, uh, as she, when she contacted me, I kind of took everything in, you know, with an open mind. Because, you know, of all the others that have come forward. But, um, yeah, she kind of took it and ran with it and put it all over the media. And uh, I wish she didn't. And I wish I had not associated with her. But I did. And I can't change it. And, uh, I mean, the fact of the matter is these are still unsolved. Yes. You know. Bottom line. Uh, Bottom line, and nobody's ever been arrested. Nobody's ever uh, gone to jail, and uh, these poor families have never seen justice. I mean, some of these family members are passing away now, um, like Bernice Cornemash. Her parents just passed away the past couple of years, and it's sad because now they they have no answers. Um, I believe the the detectives in the state police could have done more. Um, I believe uh, these are solvable cases. I think they've had a lot of missed opportunities. Um, <laughs> I, I, I sometimes I, I, I lose faith in them. Um, like a couple of years ago, they called me up and said, "You know, we got fingerprints off your car. Can you come in and be re-fingerprinted?" Because when they lifted fingerprints off my car, everybody that had any contact with my car way back then, right after my attack, came in and got fingerprinted. And two years ago, they were like, can we re-fingerprint you? We want to just eliminate a couple of more prints. And I said, yeah, I'll come in and be re-fingerprinted. And so he was like, all right, well, we'll contact you in two weeks, give you a good time and place to go. And, you know, we talked about where to where I would go and stuff. And yeah, that's almost, what, two and a half years, and I still haven't heard back from him. Oh. So I don't, I don't know if... Maybe they don't have fingerprints. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I still haven't heard from them though. Jane. So yeah, I kind of, I kind of lose faith in them, and I hate it. I hate it. But I think, I think these are solvable cases. Um, I gave them an enormous amount of information. I mean, and and I and I, like one of the things they've always thought that he had a four wheel drive. He was driving a Jeep Wagoneer that night. A four-wheel drive um, with wood grain siding. I gave the color. You know, I, I could not have been more detailed with stuff like that. Yeah. I don't know. It's yeah. just uh, there's so much information I had given them, and, and I just don't understand why they're not solved. I, I really don't. Do you do you have a contact there at all or in, with law enforcement in general? 
or not. No. no. The, dete- the main detective that was on my case 34 years ago, he retired. Okay. Um, I know that there's been a few. There's a cold case unit in Concord in New Hampshire. And I know there's been quite a few that have been, um, you know, they go into the cold cases or, or, you know, but I know a lot of them had come and gone too. So I know there's been a lot of fresh eyes on, on the cases, but it doesn't seem like anything just comes about. Well, it's frustrating. It's so frustrating. It's like, that's why you're doing your podcast and you're doing interviews with me and other shows and you're keeping the story out there. And you know, that's the most important thing. And in, in all reality is you've taken the reins of your story and you're now in charge of it and you're not letting the investigation dictate what you know or don't know about this case. And now you have a team that is working yeah. with you that has helped you with this podcast, Invisible Tears, which can be found anywhere you get your podcasts. And, you know, highly recommend checking that out. And do you have any like closing thoughts that you would like to leave the listeners with as far as like, okay. I do. Yeah. I'd, lo- I'd love to hear them. <laughs> I'm also, I'm also working on another project with Crawlspace Media, uh, Tim and Lance and Jen. We're working on another project called Dark Valley and that is going to be coming out, uh, in the spring. That's going to be a podcast. And I'm super excited about that because they're really going to focus on the investigative part of the Connecticut River Valley murders. Um, and the families and, and they're, they're, it's, I love working with them. And, um, they're also allowing me to tell my story on that podcast. So it, it's been, it's, I'm so thankful for them too. They're, they're such awesome guys. Yeah. They're um, so Dark Valley will be coming out in the spring. And, um, I'm also, I want to bring up, uh, Trish Haynes in, in New Hampshire. I don't know if you're familiar with her, but, um, she was murdered and the two people that killed her are still not arrested and it's infuriating. Um, they're doing a, uh, vigil uh, or, um, an event up in, up in Concord, New Hampshire on September 24th. I'm going to be there with her family and her friends and everybody else to try to get these authorities to do something about this. Um, cause it is very evident on who killed her. And I don't understand why those two people are still walking, uh, the face of the earth. I, I and not in jail. I, I don't, I don't understand it. Um, but yeah, um, invisible tears, uh, we, um, you can find Invisible Tears wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. And we have a website, invisible, uh, slash tears.com. Um, check out the website. We got a lot of, uh, other information on there. And, um, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. So. Yeah. I think I covered you're multi, everything. You're a multimedia <laughs> machine. I see Tim and Lance have, well, <laughs> have gotten into you. Yeah, Tim and Lance. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. But I'm lucky because I don't have to do all that uh, social media stuff. That's Amanda and her daughter. Um, they've been taking care of all that for me, which I'm I'm so grateful for because I just I, I'm not very good at that. So, 
But um, and I wanna just let's uh say the names. Let's get this case solved, and let's say the names of the the victims that didn't survive because we haven't really uh said their names. But I, I know, and I and I want yeah, let's do it. Let's There's hear Kathy Mulligan. There's Elizabeth Critchley, Eva Morse, Ellen Freed, Bernice Cordemarche, Linda Moore, and Barbara Agnew. Those are the real victims. They're the ones, uh, they're the reasons why I'm doing this. Uh, I want to be their voice. And um, these cases need to be solved. Let's, uh, enough with the missed opportunities. Let's solve these cases. I like it. I like it. I think that you have done an incredible job um, overcoming a lot of uh, a lot of the issues that come along with being a victim, uh, being a survivor of a serial killer, Survivor. which is just not something a lot of people can say. And the fact that you're basically you're now a victim's advocate, <laughs> you know, following up on stuff and doing doing things doing things um you know appropriately and you know following up and and I just think it's really great that you've been able to do this and you you got a team with you and you know the Dark Valley coming out with Tim and Lance I mean you know they're they're rock stars and you know I've known them for a while and so yeah, you know good good to, crew to be hooked up with and uh, I can't imagine that they will do your story wrong and they will uh be on it as uh i mean you couldn't have picked a better duo so um i mean i love i, I love nick nick and nick and the captain are my are my guys from true crime garage but uh tim and lance are the media, multimedia uh leaders in the podcast world and uh yeah they're quite uh quite a force and they're very funny and they're very fun and they can help they can help you um make a little bit of have a little bit of humor in a little bit of a dark situation. And, and I hope that you've been yeah. able to get that from them as well. And absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I can tell by your smile that, yeah. you know, that they, that they, they do that. So, uh, that's incredible. And, um, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Thank you so much for allowing me to share my story. It, it means a lot. Well, it means a lot that, that you were able to come on and, and, be open and honest and share a lot of this very personal stuff. And I think our listeners will be extremely interested in what you had to say. And, and I just can't thank you enough. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much to Jane Borowski for joining us this week on who killed. As you know, I drop new episodes every Friday. You can check out her podcast on any platform and that is invisible tears and again she is also going to be doing dark valley in the spring with tim and lance so definitely worth checking out and again thanks so much for setting that up i do appreciate that she is a survivor and talking to a survivor of a serial killer is definitely an experience so kudos to her and what she's been able to overcome in her life so thank you again for listening you can follow me on twitter at bill huffman three and as you know you can donate to the show via venmo at bill huffman three or on slowburnmedia.com 
on the donate button, and that's slow minus the W. So again, thank you to Jane, thank you to Evergreen, thank you to Slow Burn and Killer Podcasts, and I hope, as always, you guys stay safe and have a great week. 3AM, the comedy horror podcast that holds weekly gatherings around the campfire. Let me tell you what you're going to get. You're going to hear stories about demonic possessions, prison stabbings, skinwalkers, glitches in the Matrix, cult leaders, missing 411, night marchers, Operation Paperclip, Mesopotamian devil worship, and so many monsters it'll give Kanye West a runaway for his money. Pop and meme culture also aren't off topic. A camp where laughs and scares are constantly competing for first place. We're just a group of friends trying to bust each other's balls, find the best stories, and expand the circle in the process. 3AM, the comedy horror podcast, not for the faint or fragile of heart. Let's go. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there.